Welcome to Radio Topistan. Since last episode, at least one of the statues of King Leopold II, still standing around in Belgium, has been removed. Grace Cabera, whom you met last week in Congo, says, Sincerely, I'm very happy about that. Leopold II was one of the most brutal and ambitious European exploiters of Africa. Today, we go to another place that is mainly associated with violence and misery, Gaza. But we're gonna meet a lady that shines a very hopeful and cheerful light on that dark place under occupation, siege and patriarchy. Masht Masharawi. And I remember my friends making fun of me. They were saying, oh, you know, you killed yourself to travel and now you want to come back. It's not understandable. It's so stupid what you did. And then two months later, or even a month and a half later, I left to the States and I came back again. And they thought I'm stupid again. And I was like, no, I guess you are the stupid one. I'm not the stupid one. <laughs> I just said, no, I don't want to study anymore. I want to be a businesswoman. <laughs> Radio Topistan is a place to gather visionary people from around the world, to interconnect ideas and people who fight for their utopias. For example, making something out of nothing, like Masht or fighting for democracy in a corrupt state like Congo, where Grace is fighting. It's not about blueprints of how to organize societies or how to organize your fridge. It's about roadmaps, ideas and inspirational people along the way. A kaleidoscope, a network of progressive spaces within the system or outside the system. My name is Elisabeth Weidt, I'm a journalist, mostly reporting on topics like natural resources or radicalism, so palm oil, copper, conflict, not always delightful, I have to say. So the idea was to gather people that shine a more hopeful light on those topics. Happy if you come along. And today we meet Majd Majarawi from Gaza, Palestine. And I hear the fact that everyone around the world call us victims. Uh, wherever I go, you know, people feel sorry for me. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I want them to respect me, to see me as, you know, to empower me, to help me empower others. The best thing that happened to me, Elizabeth, that I grew up in a place like Gaza. Mm -hmm. Because it taught me how to be resilient, how to be strong, how to go around everything to make things happen, how to help others. What does life mean? And, and how to be grateful for everything I have. Majd is 26 years old and already an engineer and founder of two companies with 26. One company for turning rubble and ashes into bricks and houses and another company for turning sunlight into electricity. How impressive is that? Green Cake and Sunbox are the names of her companies. Majd until two years ago, had never been outside of Gaza. Just imagine, being 24 years old and never having seen anything but the small space you grew up in. But that has changed drastically after she became a businesswoman. Meanwhile, she has already visited 19 countries. Among them, Turkey, Jordan, the US, Japan and Slovenia. And she was invited to speak at a TED conference those speeches about innovative ideas that are published online. Some have millions of viewers. 
Marsh has 1.5 million of viewers. Have a look, she came in high heels and headscarf. Here's an extract of her speech. For more than 10 years, I and 2 million people back home have been living in darkness, locked between two borders that are nearly impossible to leave, literally, in an area that spans 25 miles long and about five miles wide. I am Palestinian, and I am from Gaza. I grew up there, and I still live there. In Gaza, we have a whole lot of nothing, and I aim to create something from that nothing. In 2014 war, thousands of houses were destroyed. Those houses stood for decades and decades. Those houses were for my family, friends, neighbors, everyone I know. And that time I asked myself a question. What can I do for people? How can I help them? I knew we weren't able to get cement, aggregate and sand to rebuild what the world destroyed. But also, maybe we can use something from inside the community, something we already had. And if there is one thing not lacking in Gaza, it's ashes and rubble. Since many severe wars during the last years have led to the destruction of hundreds of houses. Masht, however, instead of surrendering to her fate in such a desperate place, she decided to take the leftovers of the war and create something new. Gaza, a small strip at the Mediterranean Sea, is home to about 2 million Palestinians, many of whom are refugees originating from villages that were located in what is now the state of Israel. It is said to be one of the most densely populated places of the world. Time and again, rockets by different militia groups are being shot out of Gaza to Israel, while Israel bombards Gaza with heavy artillery. Since more than 50 years, the people of Gaza live under Israeli military occupation. And more than that, since almost 15 years under siege, meaning Gaza's borders, the seashore and the sky are strictly controlled. It's almost impossible for people to leave or for anyone to enter. Also import and export are very difficult. That's why Gaza has often been referred to as the biggest open-air prison of the world. I was interrogated so many times on the border. And I was kept and held for hours and hours. Sometimes, literally, Elizabeth, I lose my mind. But that never, never held me back, or it never break me. You know, because my vision is beyond the politics, the borders, the blockade. Okay, and we try to do something with the worst conditions worldwide. Okay, with nothing, with limited resources, with limited knowledge, with limited, you know, with limited freedom, with limited everything. And you know, when you see, it's when you taste the freedom, it's hard to go back to the prison. Whoa. Okay, and when you taste honey, you want to have the whole jar. And that was the situation yeah. with me. And then I reminded myself of the vision I had. It's not about me enjoying life outside, it's about changing others' lives. Just a few more figures so that you get an idea of what life is like for Masht. Everything is monitored, even our call now. A UN report from 2012, for example, claims 
Gaza will become an uninhabitable place by this year, by 2020. Recent World Bank figures state 97% of available groundwater are undrinkable. And almost everyone has to get water from expensive and unregulated vendors. The youth unemployment rate lies by more than 60%. Electricity supply only works on an average of 10 to 12 hours a day. And the harsh living conditions are worsened by the dogmatic mindset of the ruling party Hamas. I used to say that I'm not a politician, but I guess being a Palestinian is a political identity. So we can't avoid it. It's within our, you know, our hands, our lights, our daily life. I woke up this morning on the sound of a rocket. So it's part of my, my life. It's part of my childhood. It's part of my past, present and future. To counter these general Gaza impressions and figures, I'll present to you some of Masht's figures. Her first company, Green Cake, built 40 flats and has sold 50,000 bricks made out of ashes and rubble. Her second company, Sunbox, so far managed to bring electricity to around 10,000 people's homes, she says. They set up streetlights in several villages and converted salt water into drinking water for more than 3,000 families. I could see yeah. that people who made fun of me in the beginning, now they respect me so much. Now when I go to a wedding, Elizabeth, everyone comes and shake hands with me. Majd and me, we got in contact via a friend of a friend. My plan was to visit her personally in Gaza to do a report about her entrepreneurship. I mean, she's not just being a businesswoman in a place where there are almost no resources, but also in a place where there is intense conflict and a harsh patriarchy. I wanted to see how she's dealing with all those obstacles have a tea with her, see some solar panels and families. But then came COVID and you never know what comes next, so we set up a date for a video call for Radio Topistan. It was still Ramadan by then. Hello, hello. Ramadan Karim first. Thank you so much. Oh, oh. Ramadan Karim to you too. <laughs> Thank you. This must be a very special Ramadan this year, right? How is Ramadan 2020 in Gaza with COVID? Yeah, well, it's my first Ramadan after three years of traveling to spend it with the family. So it's very, very special to me. And I, I love Ramadan. It's the only time of the year where we all gather around the table. We eat together, we cook together, we clean together, we pray together. And sometimes, you know, bad things happen in your life and everyone thought, that Corona is bad and it's still bad, but for us, it really helps us, you know, to reunite and it goes perfectly with Ramadan time. So we pray all the time, we read Quran. So yeah, I'm, 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 I'm quite happy. Okay. Um, I didn't get everything because the connection was somehow interrupted here and there, but you said you, it's your first Ramadan in, in Gaza since three years, right? You've been traveling before. Where, where have you been all the time? In 2017, I was in the States. In 2018, I guess I was in the States too. In 2019, I was in Europe. Business travels, uh, meeting people, um, meeting also donors, investors, and this different kind of people. Just for the sake of the work we do. It's, it's amazing the work you're doing. Do you remember the first moment when everything started? 
yeah, how can I forget this first moment? Yeah. Uh, I always wanted to be different, Elizabeth, and yeah. I always felt I am different. Um, well, maybe everyone around me used to make fun of me, and, yeah. and you know, growing up in a community like Gaza, I always thought that there is something beyond the borders. There's something yeah. beyond the fence. There's something beyond this big Mediterranean Sea. And this sense of, of uh, curiosity, it drove me to read and watch videos and talk to people online. And I just wanted to travel. I wanted to see how the world looks like. I wanted to be in a place where no one speaks my language. I wanted to be in a place where no one, you know, has has same as my traditions. And in order to do this, I figured out that I need to do something in my life in order to be recognized. And so since I was a kid, I just I was so active. <laughs> I tell my parents, thanks for being so patient. Um, yeah, I was very active. I used to go, like, you know, to join campaigns, to create campaigns, to create movements, to join different programs since I was like 12 years old. I wanted to see how the world looks like. And in order to do this, I needed to be recognized and to do something meaningful in my life, something impactful, something that's going to help people. I grew up in a, in a family where my parents provided me with the best education. Um, and the best education, the best languages, everything. But we are we are representing less than 2% of the population. And I always wanted to give back. So I was privileged with this. So I wanted to give back to my community, to my friends, to my neighbors, to my even like family members. My life really started, I wouldn't say when I started my first company. It started before when I was at college in the first year of college and I saw a competition for Microsoft and I wanted just to do something. I was like, why not to apply for it? What they wanted us to do. And I created a team, created a product. We failed. We weren't successful, but the failure taught me so many lessons. Um, so yeah, the moment the moment the moment it started when I felt I wanted to do something for people. Yeah, as a kid, you already noticed that you want to go out and you want to see the world. I mean, where did you get that inspiration from? Was it somehow also in your family, or was it the internet, or how did you how did you start? I have very special parents, Elizabeth. I'm so lucky to have have them as my parents. My dad is an entrepreneur himself and he's a very successful businessman. I he used to, to take us to his office to play around. I used to use the computer. Maybe I'm the first kid in Gaza who got computer at her, at her house. And my mom is educated. My mom just finished her master's in law. And, and I grew up in this okay. family where my parents work like so hard. They build themselves from like nothing. My, my dad is an orphan. And you know, orphans in our community, they don't have the privilege of other, pe of other kids. He, he paid his blood to build his future. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, I got my inspiration from them. I've never woke up in the morning and I saw them sleeping. I, they always work. And they always try, you know, to, to not make us suffer. And my dad brings us a lot of books. So I, I remember when I was, maybe I was like seven or eight years old, he brought us encyclopedia. Yeah. And it was like this thick and it was so expensive. And then we, I started reading it and it was a huge book. It's my baby like this size, huge book. Like as a kid, I couldn't carry it myself. And, and I told him, why did you bring us encyclopedia? And he said, because I can't get you out outside of Gaza, you know, so you have to discover the world by yourself. And I still have this book in my library. And so, yeah, so he, like this kind of situation really planted seeds inside inside me that that grew up later. 
Wow, this is amazing. And also the way your dad went then from an orphan to a businessman. What kind of business is he having? Does it, is it also somehow in the engineering field or is it somewhere else? Not really. My dad did different businesses. So he, he had a contracting company. And mm. first, my dad is the first one who brought printers to Gaza. They used to draw, draw maps in Gaza using the hands and a pen and paper. And then he went to France and he brought printers from France to Gaza. And he used to work literally, Elizabeth, 24 hours. When I was a kid, I don't remember seeing my dad every day like other kids. Yeah. Only flashbacks in my memory from me going to my dad's office. I don't have a flashbacks of my dad taking us to gardens, you know, to places where we can play. No, only like work, work, work. So it was his first business and he became so famous and he brought also technology. So he, he's the first one who taught engineers AutoCAD. AutoCAD is like engineering tool to draw maps and different things. So he went to the States, he got the course there and he went back to Gaza and he taught so many engineers. So when I was studying at my college, most of the teachers, they used to tell me, oh, do you know someone called Ismail Masharaw? And I was like, yes, he's my dad. And they said, oh, he's the one who taught me AutoCAD. <laughs> nice. And also you, he taught you. Because uh, it's not that common that girls are that interested in engineering. No? Uh, well, um, I love it. Oh. I, I grew up with it. I grew up with the sense of being an engineer. <laughs> it wasn't oh, yeah. a choice. <laughs> And then you even you studied engineering at Gaza University, and uh, how was that? I mean, it's it's hard to imagine that you, as almost the only girl in the whole all the seminars and the lectures, and then the boys. How did they treat you? How was that? Uh, well, Elizabeth, um, when I graduated from secondary school, I got A plus, and I was one of the best students at my school. And my my mom wanted me to be a doctor, and my dad yeah. said, "Don't go to engineering." Okay, it's just oh. exhausting. Oh. Just you have to study something like business. Maybe you have to study like English literacy. And um, in my delegation, there were, I guess, 120 male students and we were 18 female students. Oh. And most of the students who entered this college, civil engineering, I wanted to be a mechanical engineer first, not a civil engineer. And I was the only student. Oh, no, we were only two female students who applied to be mechanical engineers. And the college said, we cannot open a whole class for two students. So they said, we are not going to teach you mechanical engineering. You should go to civil engineering. And most of the students, most of the female students who entered uh, civil engineering, they just went to civil engineering. This is a, a really honest thing. Like, you will laugh. But I, I want to just show you how female thing. Because they thought civil engineering is the easiest department and they wanted to be called engineers in their wedding invitations. <laughs> Literally. So we were like out of 18, I would tell you less than five of, of us were serious about this. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I was like super active at, during the college. Most of the girls used to spend their time going here, shopping. I was like super, very focused, wanted to make things happen, try to do a project. I had no idea about business, entrepreneurship and this kind of stuff. I just want to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to my, in my second year, I remember going with a submarine design to my fluid mechanics professor by telling him, oh, maybe we can build a submarine and dive and throw the sea to the other side. So I just, I was so focused on getting my freedom. <laughs> <laughs> just, just getting, getting out, out of Gaza. Yeah, just, I want to yeah. get out. I want to try to travel. 
<laughs> and when was the first time you traveled then? In 2017. Well, I was trying for more than eight years. I tried since I graduated from secondary school. Oh. And every time I was rejected. Believe me, sometimes I get a visa, flight tickets blocked, everything blocked, and I just get rejection. Oh. Uh, and I lost so many scholarships. I lost around nine scholarships. Oh my God. Yeah. So I was the first student from Gaza who was selected to be an exchange student to Germany, Technical University of Berlin. Oh, okay. And it didn't happen. No, this is in my third year of college. And I was supposed to study for a year there and come back. This is how I learned German. Yeah. So genau. <laughs> what you wrote to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And, and then I got also a master uh, scholarship to study at Technical University of Vienna. And I couldn't oh. go. I couldn't make it. I got a visa. I, I got everything. I just oh, yeah? didn't, didn't get the exit permit. No, I got a, I got a two-year visa uh, from uh, Austria. I got my flight tickets, accommodation, everything, scholarship, and then, oh. then I didn't make it. Oh. And did they give you reasons? Well, I don't know if you're familiar with the process of getting out of Gaza, but in order to get out, you need first an unobjection from Jordan. And oh. then you need a permit from Israel and a coordination through the PA and then a permit from the government in Gaza. Oh. And it's really impossible to get the four of them. I'm one of, I wouldn't say I'm one of, I'm the luckiest young Palestinian in Gaza who travels now. I'm the luckiest, yeah. believe me. Yeah, that's why I was so impressed that you didn't spend the last three Ramadans in, in Gaza, but you were always traveling. So now it's easier for you to get the permits or how is that working? <laughs> it will never be easy, but uh, it's, I know how to get it. It's now you have also people who supports you. This is the difference. Uh -huh. The first time I left Gaza, I left with UNRWA, United Nations Refugees and Working Agency. And uh -huh. uh, when I applied to a competition that was held by them and I got the first prize and part of uh -huh. the prize was the travel to Japan. Uh -huh. So I went to Japan and can, just I want you to imagine going from Gaza to Japan. <laughs> it was out of mind. And and yeah, it was very tough. I spent two weeks there. I went back to Gaza. I was very shocked, very upset, very oh. depressed. And, you know, some people, I, I tell you, honestly, none of the young people I know in my life who left went back. Elizabeth, I lost you. Hello? I hear you. Okay, okay, okay. So now we, we have a gap in between the, the lines. So from the submarine idea to going to Japan, what happened in between? How did that go? First, and after, going, after building the submarine, I was supposed to go to Germany. And then I couldn't leave because I didn't get the exit permit oh. from Israel. And then oh. in my fourth year, I started working on my Green Bricks project. Oh. And it took me around almost a year to build the first prototype. And then oh. I graduated and I joined one of the local, even I joined it before graduation. Yeah, I joined a local incubator in Gaza, a business incubator, oh. where I wanted, you know, oh. to meet people who look like me, people who are, you know, interested in business and entrepreneurship. And it was my first time to hear about the entrepreneurship term. Oh. And I started, you know, just learning and learning. It was not the best experience that anyone could have, but it's a great start. Oh. Yeah, so I learned so much. I learned how to do different things, how to talk to people. They built so many connections for me. And and I wanted to do, so I started building the bricks and I wanted to do technical, you know, testings on, it, on them. And this is why I went to Japan for oh. refining the product. And then after okay. going back from Japan, I felt most of the young people who leave Gaza, Elizabeth, they never, ever come back. 
and it's totally oh. understandable. In that time, my scholarship to Vienna, they called me and they said, we can postpone it till this year if you're still interested to join. And I was, you know, between two things. I was skeptical. I was like, shall I go back? Shall I just stay outside? Uh, this is my life. I don't want to go back to the same prison. And then I reminded myself of the vision I had. It's not about me enjoying life outside. It's about changing others' lives. Oh. And I just said, no, I don't want to study anymore. I want to be a businesswoman. <laughs> and I went back oh. to Gaza. And to be honest, I regretted it in the beginning. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, how? You were sitting in between your family and said, what? Yeah. And you know, when you see, it's when you taste the freedom, it's hard to go back to the prison. Oh. Okay. And when you taste honey, you want to have the whole jar. And that was the situation okay. with me. And everyone blamed me. They said, you are crazy. You are stupid. It never happens. You get once in a lifetime to leave. And now you come back. No one knows when are you going to leave again. What did you do to yourself? You could be a great, maybe lecturer or a professor outside. Go do your master's and PhD. Yeah. And, but that, that's not what I wanted to yeah. do. And I remember my friends making fun of me. They were saying, oh, you know, you killed yourself to travel. And now you want to come back. They said, we cannot understand. How do you think? How do you? It's, it's so stupid what you did. And then I started to regret it. I was like, oh, maybe I will never be able to leave again. Maybe they are right. And then in the same day when I returned back to Gaza, I had an email from a fellowship I applied for that I was accepted. Ah. Yeah. Two weeks later, I left Gaza for the second time. Wow, so they just gave you the permit then? That's it. I just got a permit. I went to Jerusalem. I did my US visa. Just like this? That, just like this. Because I believed in it. Yeah, I believed in it. I was like, I don't care what others say. I just have it inside my heart. I know I'm going to leave again. I know I'm going to be oh. free so soon. And then oh. two months later, or even a month and a half later, I left to the States. And you came back again? And I came back again. And they thought I'm stupid again. And I was like, no, I guess you are the stupid one. I'm not the stupid one. <laughs> <laughs> and are there now sometimes moments where you regret that you came back? Never, ever. Never, ever. That's nice. Because when you do things with love, you never regret it. Oh, I love oh. my country, Elizabeth. I really love it so much. And it's very special to me. Yeah, and you're very successful with what you do. I mean, it's, I can hardly imagine how it must be in a society like the Gaza Society to build companies like this as a woman being an engineer. And can you talk a little bit more about this? I mean, it is a patriarchy culture, isn't it? How do men deal with you when you go to the family houses and explain them about the electricity and stuff? And how was it to build to make the first steps of your company. I mean, now I guess people know you and they welcome you and they are happy if you come to their houses and places. But when you started, was it hard to, to, to convince people that your ideas are working, that they give, people give you money or other people trust in you or the political situation? I mean, you, you need space to create something like this. How did, you, how did you open the space for yourself? Elizabeth, I would lie if I tell you it was easy journey. It wasn't easy at all. It was very, 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 very tough. And it's still tough, but easier than the past. Um, when I started my first company, um, I literally, I used to hide the fact that I'm working in a factory. And I used to see my friends getting jobs, you know, getting great salaries, and I have no income, like zero income. 
and yeah I spent nights and nights crying on my pillow because you know I could feel that I'm alone I'm alone like no one is with me like who believes in me no one and everyone is making fun of me um, even my family like my family is very very supportive but they were super worried they were super worried that I will I'm behaving like a man <laughs> I remember my parents oh. telling me Maj do you have to understand the fact that you are a woman in Gaza you cannot live as a man with a US uh, he was my dad was saying you cannot live with American mentality inside a conservative community oh. yeah so sometimes I also had some blood pressure problems because I was thinking so much Elizabeth I lived oh. under pressure so many people betrayed me so many people stole money from me so many oh. people even betrayed me during the production so they provided me with you know corrupt uh, corrupted cement or this kind of stuff and I had to pay for the customers and I have to pay for the, the factory and literally I had no business skills so I didn't know how to you know to manage this process how to build a real business and and even when I went to the states I called my dad I was like hey dad I want to do a solar company and he said aren't you fed up with the Briggs company <laughs> isn't that enough to satisfy you <laughs> yeah so my dad was like listen I don't want more headache finish your studies and come back no more companies now it's the time for a husband <laughs> so yeah it was it was it was really tough and i could see like how many of my friends one of my friends um i texted them and i said oh hey we have a mutual friend who we used to study with during primary school just texted me and she said uh, she remembers me and he said okay so stay single until the daughter of this friend will text you that was oh. so offensive I I hear I heard so many things. I heard that um I'm like a man I'm not like a man. I heard that people calling me a man and because my name is more manly than womanly. So they used oh. to tell me, "Oh, she she's reflecting her name." Oh. And I used to hear I I even stopped going to weddings because I don't want to meet family members who just make fun of me. Okay. And and, and how is it now? Are they are people respecting you now? Success is the best is the best evidence. Whoa. believe me and my dad is like now super super supportive he's investing in my company my brothers right. are working with me in the company right. and what gave you the power and what gave you energy while you were depressed and while you got all those evil comments from from the people around you even from your family what what gave you the energy to keep going to even come up with a new company it's love It's I love people. I love what I'm doing. I believe in myself a lot, Elizabeth. Since I was a kid, I I, I feel that I can do so many things in, on this earth. I don't want to be a number, and even I didn't want to be a number when I was a kid. I always wanted to be, you know, a productive person. And I hate the fact that everyone around the world call us victims. Uh, wherever I go, you know, people feel sorry for me. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I want them to respect me, to see me as, you know, to empower me, to help me empower others. And, oh. and, and, and I always tell people I don't like when someone needs help and he begs for it. Oh. I love the strong person. I don't love the weak person. When, when you are strong, people would stand by your side. When you are weak, people would keep you on the back. Oh. So it wasn't easy journey. It was really, really tough. But I, the light that kept me going is the love. I love what I'm yeah. doing. I love people. I love our work. I love how I see the impact. In the beginning, oh. it was not. I couldn't see it on the ground. But I believed that after a few steps, 
I would see it. Mm -hmm. When you say you love people and then you got betrayed by people and people were calling you evil names and not respecting you, how do you keep the love for people when you get all those bad things from people? Elizabeth, people in Gaza live in under special conditions. Like I totally understand why people think the same way. I used, I didn't used to think the same way, but I used to be conservative too. I'm still conservative, but not super conservative. Like I'm, I'm now in neutral. But we grew up in a community where everything is prohibited for women. Mm-hmm. You cannot believe me. My, my dad used to tell me you are, you cannot stay in an office with men. Mm-hmm. You can't. You cannot mm-hmm. walk in the street with your colleague. You cannot even drive your colleague in your car. Imagine. So we live in this community. My dad is not saying this because he is he's old-fashioned but because he wants to protect me from what people say so we live in this community and i totally understand their mentality if we live in berlin we see how the world looks like people won't think the same way so you can't blame them because they live under very special conditions and they were they were subjected to so many things like bombings wars blockade freedom lack of freedom lack of water lack of electricity so how do you expect someone to think in a neutral way so this is what I'm, what I want to do. I want I want to empower them. I want to provide them with things that others have for granted outside. Yeah. Yeah, and you saw how it is to have it for granted. Yeah, and I could see how how many families their life changed because of what we do. And I could see how their even their way of thinking elevated to different oh. levels. Can you give examples? Yes, I can give examples. Um we were installing a solar system last week for um, someone who does a uh, kidney washing. Oh. He's a seven years old kid. And when we entered the house, uh, the dad, you, he said, listen, my kid is a kid and he wants to play with the kids in the street. But because of the electricity, I used to, I used to, to wash his kidney based on the electri- electrical hours. He needs 10 hours a day. Oh. In the best case scenario, the electricity comes for eight hours. Oh. So he messes two hours. Okay. okay. Yeah. And then, and I told him, so how, how do you solve it? And he says, I go to the mosque and I try to beg them to give me an electrical line so I can run the device. And then, and the woman entered and she said, it's not, it's more than washing a kidney. It's for me. I cook when the light is on. I change my clothes when the light is on. Even my husband now likes me more. He can see how my face looks like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and then I asked the guys before installing the solar system, how they had, so the husband started to laugh. So I asked this, uh, the guys before the solar system was installed, how the husband, and they said, oh, they, he was super mad, super angry. He used to shout on his wife. But when I went there, he was treating her like a princess. <laughs> You know, and even when people see sees me that I'm not wearing like a jilbab, which is a long dress, I'm just, you know, very casual, very open, talk to everyone, talk to men, talk to women in a neutral way, people started, you know, to, you know, to reframe their minds. And they was like, maybe this is the right thing. She's a praying, she's a Muslim, she's wearing a scarf, she's traveling and she's doing business. Maybe this is the normal case and she's successful. Okay. Yeah, and it's changing things. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and I could see yeah. that people who made fun of me in the beginning now they respect me so much. Now when mm-hmm. I go to a wedding, Elizabeth, everyone comes and check hands with me. Mm-hmm. So see the difference. <laughs> and I guess they want their sons to marry you. Yeah, exactly, and this is <laughs> this, this is the scenario. 
<laughs> you are familiar with the culture. <laughs> But I'm now engaged, yeah. finally. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I mean, it's it's hard enough, I guess, to be in, in Gaza. But of course, Gaza is part of this hopeless, one of the most complicated conflicts still on Earth between Israel and Palestine. It's like it seems so, so far away, peace or justice or just some little steps even seem so far away and impossible. Um, how, how do you act within this huge complicated conflict? Is every decision you take also somehow a political decision? Or do you try to stay as far away from this whole scenario? But is it, is it possible anyhow to be away from the, the politics in this conflict? I mean, you get almost every side, seem, you could get threats from every side or everybody could be, get mad at you with ev whatever you do like what you told from the from the society you're living in but i can imagine also the the israeli side is anyhow suspicious with everything that's coming from gaza that's why they didn't really give you the permits in the first place how how do you see your role in this um i used to say that i'm not a politician but i guess being a palestinian is a political identity okay mm. So we can't avoid it. It's um, it's it's within our you know our hands, our lights, our daily life. I woke up this morning on the sound of Varoka. So oh. it's part of my my life. It's part of my childhood. It's part of my past, present, and future. Yeah. Um, how do we do? How do we deal with it? Uh, I I could reflect it on myself and on my company, and then maybe you can just use it an example as an example for other things. For myself, I was interrogated so many times on the border. Yeah. And I was kept and held for hours and hours. Sometimes, literally, Elizabeth, I lose my mind. You know, when you, are, when you spend like 10 hours inside the room with nothing, even with no yeah. phone. Yeah. And, and, and you keep asking yourself a question, what did I do? <laughs> right? Yeah. But that never, never held me back or it never broke me. Because I know that this is not the thing that could break me and I cannot be broken, you know, because oh. my vision is beyond the politics, the borders, the blockade. Okay, and we try to do something with the worst conditions worldwide, oh. okay, with nothing, with limited resources, with limited knowledge, with limited, you know, with limited freedom, with limited everything. Oh. We were affected so many times by the political situation. Uh, whenever we have like, you know, a conflict, or, you know, bombings um, in Israel and Gaza, uh, they close the borders. And our batteries can be held for like months and months on the borders, and that decreases the lifespan, so we had to sell them with lower prices. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so many times we had, you know, to replace batteries for people because, because the lifespan decreased, so we lost so much money. Uh, other times, when you wanted to bring anything inside Gaza, there is, it's not a regular country where you can order things and just get them. You need to get permits and approvals and coordination to get it inside and to pay so much money and to pay customs and taxes for different sites. Sometimes we pay around 48% taxes and customs. Oh. Oh. So we don't have freedom of trading. Okay, so and that's why we try now to scale up to different countries and different markets where we can operate as a real business. Yeah. Okay, in Gaza we see our company as a driven, impact-driven company. We don't see it as a profit-driven company. 
We just wanted to bring the impact here. Um, I really don't like to talk about politics because I, I, I'm not, I'm not the best person to talk to talk about this. The politics has its own people. Uh, but I talk from a young peop a young person perspective. Um, the best thing that happened to me, Elizabeth, that I grew up in a place like Gaza, mm -hmm. because it taught me how to be resilient, how to be strong, how to go around everything to make things happen, how to help others. What does life mean? And mm -hmm. and how to be grateful for everything I have. And 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 this is maybe only my only message I could see regarding uh, this question. Sure, sure. No, that's what I wanted to know. I mean, it's hard to be not political in, in a place like this. Even where you get your food or how you walk the streets or with whom you talk, with whom you talk about what, it's already a political act, no? Yeah. I was asked, like, why do you talk to this person? For how long have you talked to this person? Why you contacted this person? There's no, no. Everything is monitored, even our call now. Yeah. Okay. okay, then let's talk business, not politics. How is the financial um, system working? I mean, you're a social entrepreneur, but you sell you sell your stuff, but you also have donors and investors. Can you talk a little bit about this, how it's working? I mean, you, of course, don't give us your secrets, but whatever you can reveal. Um, in, in Gaza, we don't have a real economy. Uh, because, sure. you know, after the Gaza and West Bank separated, in the West Bank we have different ministries, in the Gaza we have different ministries, we have different systems. Uh, Gaza is treated very special. So sometimes, as I mentioned, we have to pay taxes twice and customs twice. Sometimes yeah. three times. It depends. Um, in our company, what we do is we generate profits, small profits, and then we also raise donations. And what we try to do is to subsidize, to make solar systems accessible. So someone has to pay for it or someone has to subsidize it. Okay. So we try by every single way to subsidize solar systems for the families. None of the families who got a solar system for, through us got it with a f by paying the full price. Some of them got a subsidy up to 100%. Some of them 50%. Some of them 25%. It depends. So what we do is when we generate profits from for-profit uh, projects working with international organizations at Tender, we reinvest the whole profit by subsidizing for these families. Yeah. yeah. So by the end of the year, as a company, we don't have profits and shares where we can tell, ah, oh, this is for this person, this is for this person. We all, like, even I, I work like I work for the company. Okay? I work for these people. And and we, we reinvest big part of the profits into subsidizing for more families. We work also through international organizations, local organizations. We do education. So we do a lot of uh, trainings and courses for students, university students. Uh, we sponsor events. So any event that talks about social entrepreneurship, any competition, we love to sponsor it and even give it prizes and awards. Um, what else? We invest small um, uh, profits in small enterprises for women, like who does hand embroidery stuff, who does, who have a small shop, a small cart, a falafel shop. So we try to do different things using, you know, the resources we have. Yeah. But as a company, we are registered as a for-profit because there's no registration for non-profit, but we operate as a social enterprise. Mm -hmm. And how many people are working with you right now? We are nine people. Okay, nice. Time is running. I have four quick questions I ask everyone. Okay, so what is your utopia? Like, you're working for some certain aims, and if those aims turn into reality, how would the world look like? Or Gaza, or your family? 
my dream is to fly over Gaza one day and see the solar panels on the rooftops. <laughs> the only time I flew over Palestine when I flew to Cyprus from Jordan. Okay. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I just looked at the flight, you know, the flight, the TV, and I was like, no way, I'm flying over Palestine now. <laughs> so I wish, I really wish one day I can fly over Gaza and see how many solar panels on the rooftops. Sweet. And do you have a number or an example or a situation that gives you the hope that your utopia will be true, will be reality one day? We did solar systems for 10,000. The fact that we did solar systems for more than 10,000 people makes the fact that flying over Gaza and see the solar panels are true. Because if you, ask, if you told me this question three years ago, and I would, you would tell me, you think how many people you will impact in three years? I would tell you maybe in the best case scenario, 5,000. So that makes things happen. Respect, respect, Marsh. <laughs> okay, do you have on your journey so far a reoccurring question, an unanswered question that's always coming up to you. So something like, oh, I do not understand why people this and that. I do not understand why this and that is not working or something. Yeah, I always ask myself when young people is going to wake up. Oh. Yeah. We need more young people on, on our journey. Everyone who joined our company had no, really no hope before. Okay. And I keep hearing this. They said, we felt useless before joining Sandbox. Okay, nice. Yeah. And last question. One small thing the listeners can do within the next 24 hours to help you on your way to your utopia. Uh, we are running crowdfunding campaigns soon to provide more families uh, with the street lights and with solar systems. So if they are interested to join, you don't have to donate. You just can share it. And, okay. and for us, delivering the message is more powerful than, you know, just raising funds. Because what we do is not about just getting money and funds. It's about, you know, showing the world that people can do something in Gaza. It's not about us just young people sitting in the streets doing nothing. No, we can do so many things. Great. So people can join you, follow you on Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, we are so active. You can follow Sunbox as well. We are super active on Facebook. I'm super active on Facebook, also on Instagram. Okay. Great, thanks. I get the photographer. One second. Sure. The photographer is wonderful and gifted Maria Sturm. We were planning to visit Majd together, but yeah, COVID and things. So Maria took an online portrait of Majd. You can see the result on Instagram and Facebook via Radio Topistan. Tell us what you think. And I will try to get to Gaza and meet Majd personally when travel restrictions are lifted. To have that tea see some solar panels and families. I will tell you how it works with our permit, as it's also not that easy to get in. Until then, thank you for listening to the video call with Masht Masharawi. And of course, again, I'm curious, curious, curious what you think. Tell me. Also tell me whom else to talk to, what questions or topics to put out there. And if you liked this episode, please spread the word. Send it to your friends and family or whoever could need some inspiration for their very own utopias, private and global ones. And if you want to support Majd and her utopia, we will connect her on our Facebook and Instagram. There and in the show notes, we will also put some more information about her, about Gaza and Palestine. We, this is me, Elisabeth, your host, and Anushka. Remember I told you about Radio Topistan already having an intern? 
Yeah, but Anushka already moved up from intern to partner Utopista. More about the insights of Radio Utopistan in one of our next episodes. This episode was also supported by Alena Jabarin, a beautiful friend and excellent journalist who did fact-checking and proofreading. Thank you. And as always, music, Robert Pilgrim, illustration, Christina Anas. Thank you. I leave you with the voices of Masht and Maria during their photo shooting. Enjoy and bye-bye. So it will be like a photo shoot, just digital. <laughs> okay, this is good. And now, um, exactly. So if you can hold the laptop like this, your head is there. <laughs> It's not cut off. You can turn your head a little bit to this position. That was too much, a little bit less. Just a tiny bit less. A little bit more, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Wait, go. Yeah, exactly. Stay like this. We are so funny. <laughs> ah, this is nice. Yeah. Let me see. Just one second. I want to see who's going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you briefly. I really hope uh, that you took the good uh, shots. I'm sorry if you didn't. No worries. We can try again also if I didn't. <laughs> Maybe, hopefully, in real life. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And we, fingers crossed, that um, everything is going good and fine with Gaza. And then one day we will be there and have a real conversation. I mean, a real face-to-face. Inshallah. I, I, I really hope you will visit my office one day, Inshallah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> Inshallah. Bye-bye. Ciao. Ciao. Bye-bye.